person. Thank you for all of you joining us online. Open your Bibles to the book of Philippians. We're in an 11-week study in this letter of Philippians. It's 104 verses. You can listen to it in less than 15 minutes. I've encouraged you to spend time reading or listening to this entire book. Last week, I laid a, a foundation for it in Acts chapter 16 when the church was launched. And today, I want to begin walking you through this letter. And I want you to look at me on the screen or on the stage just for a moment. I want you just to visualize something with me. If, if this is the city of Philippi where I am right now, the first movement of God in the city was outside of the city. It was a place of prayer where Paul went to a river, he went to a stream, and that's where he met, met Lydia. The first movement of God was Lydia and some others who came to know Jesus at that place of prayer. The next movement of God around Philippi was getting closer to the city, but it was on the way to the place of prayer where the movement of God drove a demon out of a woman. That was the second movement of God. So the movement of God in helping to launch the church in Philippi started a few miles outside of the city but kept working closer to the city where Lydia was outside the city she came to know Jesus and then you had this slave girl who was redeemed she was uh, the demon was cast out of her then you have the jailer and his household who come to know Jesus and then in Acts 16 it ends at Lydia's house which would have been like in the heartbeat of the city and one of the wealthier places in the city which is where she became her house became like the host for the house church the movement of God was meant to impact the city of Philippi and then about a decade later, we get what we now know as the letter of Philippians. Now today, I want to begin this sermon series in the book of Philippians in chapter 2, not chapter 1. After today, I'm going to go back next week to chapter 1, verse 3. And then up until Thanksgiving, we're going to walk through the entire letter. But today, I want to begin in chapter 2. And we're going to go all the way from verse 1 through verse 11. When God really took hold of my heart at the age of 17 years old, I'd been in church my entire life and I had memorized verses in my life. I knew John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. I knew Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I knew John eleven thirty five, Jesus wept. Like I, I could quote verses, but I had never memorized passages. I had never memorized chapters. But when God took hold of my heart at the age of 17, I think it was then the calling of God into ministry came upon my life. I decided to memorize Philippians chapter 2, what it had to, has to teach us about Jesus, what it has to teach us about what it means to live humbly before God, to, to live a life of humility. I, I saw Philippians 2 as something I needed in my life, so I memorized it. The Christ hymn is in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. And then in verse 5, it kind of lays a foundation of your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And then in verse 6, it's who being in the very nature of God, didn't consider equality with God as something to be grasped or something to be taken hold of or privilege that wasn't meant to be shared with the entire world. It wasn't something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He emptied himself. He humbled himself, which is a line you see show up twice in, twice in the hymn. Jesus humbled himself, becoming like a slave, like a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man. So in verses 6 through 8, it tells you about what Jesus has accomplished. It tells you about the work of Jesus. Verses 9 through 11 tells you about what God did. So as Jesus, it tells you about what Jesus did. It says he humbled himself and became obedient to death, not just any kind of death, but even death on a cross. And then in your Bibles in verse 9, some of your Bibles say, therefore, some of your Bibles have as a consequence, like God responded to the obedience of Jesus. Jesus' obedience to death, even death on a cross, it says God therefore, God exalted him, 
So in the Christ hymn of Philippians 2, it's not that God raised him from the dead, it's exaltation. The language in the Christ hymn isn't about Jesus being lifted up from the dead, though it is a, it's a bedrock of the Christian faith, it's about Jesus being exalted. It's about this crowning moment in the life of Christ. And it says that God gave him the name that is above every name. Now we know that an angel, early on when Jesus was born, told Mary what to name Jesus. He already had the name Jesus, so it's not that after Jesus' death, God gave him the name Jesus, but the identity of his name, the essence of his name, being the savior of the entire world, God gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all to the glory of God the Father. And the whole church said, Amen. It's probably the most important part of the letter, though Paul doesn't say that. And it's what many believe to be a song. It's, it's a hymn that was sung by the early church, though Paul doesn't tell you that. So Paul doesn't start Philippians 2 verse 6 by saying, hey, you know the song you always sing when you come together on Sundays? Let me tell you about her. Let's recite it. Paul doesn't tell you that. But for years, people have believed this is a song the church would sing. There's rhythm to it. There's poetry. It's much like Colossians 1, 15 through 20, or John 1 verses 1 through 14, or Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Like this language, it's poetic. There were hymns that the church would sing and books have been written and articles have been written and there have been debates about how this hymn functions in Philippians 2, 6 through 11. Is it three stanzas or three strophes or is it two verses and then a, then a little line of Jesus humbling himself? And you've probably been in churches before that have argued about this kind of stuff. Do we sing all four verses or is it okay every once in a while to do like verse 1, 2, and 4 and then the chorus or do you repeat the chorus? Maybe the way Paul is reciting the hymn in Philippians 2 is verse 6 and 7, the alto started off. And then in verse 8, the tenors came in. Verse 9, it's the sopranos. In verse 10 and 11, the basses come in. And if you don't know your part, just step in whenever you feel like stepping in, right? And if it's the wrong part, people will turn around and they'll give you that look like, dude, that is not your part. How great the Father's love for us. Dude, that ain't your part. Like, that's not your part. We know it was a song. And Paul recites the song, and he probably didn't write it. It was probably written before, but he uses the song to shape and form the church. Now, we know this in the early church. We know they sang, sung songs. They had hymns. And it probably wasn't about four-part harmony or how good the song sung. It was probably chance. But the reason they would do it is to remind each other about belief, like what it is they believed. It was about doctrine. It was, here is what we believe about Jesus. We know that there was somebody named Pliny the Younger, Pliny the Younger, and he was a governor of Bithynia Pontus, and he once wrote to Emperor Trajan. And you only have a handful of times where you have these historians in early Christianity who are writing to emperors or writing about what they are learning about Christianity. And one thing he said was to the emperor, he said these Christians, when they get together, they sing hymns. And when they sing their hymns, they sing to Christ as if he is God. This was becoming the reputation of Christians. They were singing hymns when they got together, and they're singing to Jesus. They're singing to this guy, Jesus, as if he were God. Every Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter, churches all over the world, they will read Philippians 2, 6-11, the Christ hymn where there's this powerful moment of exaltation in the life of Jesus where God is the one who lifts him up as the king of glory. It's this powerful moment. So in Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, it ends with what God does. And here's what God does. He lifts up Jesus, exalts Jesus, gives him the name that is above every name. 
So my friend is a preacher, Mitch Wilburn. He was a guest speaker here back in June. I remember Mitch was speaking at ACU years ago. And Mitch was talking about Philippians chapter 2, 9 through 11. And he said they were in a small group one time and they were reading this. It is an icebreaker for a small group because we're always looking for a question where people can talk about something, something to break the ice. And in, the, in that circle, they said, okay, if there is this crowning like cosmic moment where all people are together and all of our knees bow and our mouths confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all, in that moment, who is the one person or the two people you want to be standing next to when the moment happens? Like, who do you want to be next to when the knees bow and the mouths confess? And most people in the circle were saying things like, I think most of us would say they, they wanted to be seated next to a grandfather or a parent or a sibling or a child, somebody who had passed on before them, or maybe a hero in the faith, like to be reconnected to them in the crowning moment when Jesus is crowned in glory forever, when our knees bow to the ground and our mouths confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. And one person in the group said, I know this is going to sound really funny, but I hope I'm standing next to Satan. Not because I live so close with Satan that we're in that moment together, not that we showed up together, but I want to see the moment when Satan bows his knee. And when Satan looks at Jesus being crowned in glory and Satan says... My work is done. Like, there's nothing else I can do to harm people or the world. Jesus really is the Lord of all. He said, I want to be next to Satan. It's this powerful moment. But before you get to the hymn, there's like a backdrop. So in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, here's the deal. It's one sentence in the Greek. One sentence there in the Greek. There's only one verb in there, but it's one message. So all my grammar fanatics, all my English people in the house, like you would read this and you would be like, Paul... I believe in the content, but maybe a period every once in a while, take a breath, right? But four sentences, four or four verses, it's all one sentence, one verb, one message. In chapter 2, verse 1, four different times you see the word if show up. So Paul starts talking about if you have any encouragement. Now, a lot of the times when we use a word like that, or you just read it right now, how we think about what verse 1 says, like we may be thinking it's if there's any encouragement, and I'm not really sure if there is, but if there is, it's more like a question. Like, if you have this in you, like, maybe you do. I don't really know if you do, but maybe you do. Like, if there's comfort, like, you have comforting love, if there's some tenderness in you. But this is an affirmative statement. So as Paul is writing to them, he's affirming who he knows they are. So a better way to hear this or to read this is, if there is, and I know there is, or since there is. Like, I know you so well, like, since there is encouragement from being united with Christ, and since there is comfort from his love, and since there is common sharing in the Spirit, since there is tenderness and compassion, Paul is affirming who he knows they are. And the very last clause in that statement is, it's the, it's the word bows. It's like the innermost part of you, which is Paul's way of affirming who the church is. Like, deep inside of you, in your DNA, in the innermost part, Heart, I know this is who you are. It's this maternal language of a motherly woman nurturing her child. And Paul's like, this is exactly who you are. And because this is who you are, I'm making a request of you. And verse 2 is the request. Because I know this is who you are, here's the request. Make my joy complete. And he basically says the same thing four different times. That make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit, and of one mind. It's four different ways Paul is calling them and reminding them to be people, to be a church that is united in every way. So here's the thing when it comes to unity, being united, 
Like sometimes we think unity and division, but there's so much in between what it could mean to be divided people and united people. What I mean is just because you're not divided doesn't mean you're united in the way God wants you to be united. Just because you don't hate people doesn't mean you love people the way God wants you to love people. Just because you may be somebody who is peaceful doesn't mean you are a peacemaker the way Jesus calls you to be a peacemaker. Right? Just because you may not be tearing down bridges doesn't mean you're building bridges to make for a better tomorrow. Right? Just because you aren't a racist doesn't mean that you're living life in a way that's dismantling forms of racism around you. So Paul doesn't spend a lot of time telling people, don't be divided. He spends a lot of time telling people, this is why you've got to be united. Because for Paul, it's not just about you getting along with each other. It's about witnessing the world. It's about witnessing the city. Like, we are united and we protect and we promote the unity of the church because there is witness in the world. There is witness in the world. So in verse 1, it's, hey, because I know these things are true about who you are, meet my request in verse 2. Like, live a united life. In this first 3 and 4, it's this. Don't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. And don't look out for your own needs, but for the needs of others. So look to your neighbor right now and say, you need some humility in your life. Go ahead. Say it nice. Say it with a nice tone, okay? You, just, you need some humility in your life. The preacher gave me permission to say this to you. I've been wanting to say it for a long time. You need some humility in your life. Maybe you heard the story before about this student who was awarded one day in school. He was awarded the most humble award. He was given a pen for this, and by the end of the day, it was taken away from him because he chose to wear the pen all day, which defeated the purpose. So you can't be the most humble person and wear that all day. Now look at the screen just for a moment, because there are two different ways you could hear this. Like one way is do nothing out of selfish ambition or being conceit, but in humility, value others better than yourself. So stop doing that. Like stop being selfish. Or you could read that and think like don't start doing this. I think for Paul in this moment, it's not telling them to stop behaving in a way that is selfish. I think it's Paul writing to them saying, hey, don't start that kind of behavior. It disrupts the unity in the church. Right in the middle, he calls them to, like, to live out like humility, embody humility. This is a gift from God. It is a gift to the world when you embrace it as a way of life, which would have sounded so weird to people living in the first century world. It wasn't a value you tried to live into. Eugene Peterson's a best-selling writer, prolific writer. I've read so much of his stuff. If you have the message, the version, the message of the Bible on your phone, Eugene Peterson is the one who wrote that. And he tells the story that early on in his life, early on in middle school, he was in a school and there was a bully and this bully every day was like picking fights with everybody. He was beating people up all the time. And one day Eugene Peterson was walking home from school and this bully was just picking fights with everybody. And he said he didn't know what came over him, but something came over Eugene and he just snapped. And he said they're walking home in the snow and he just tackled the guy and got on top of him, pinned his arms to the ground and this starts punching him in the face. And all the crowds running around him, and they're cheering him on, like, punch him harder, bloody his nose. And he said he just kept punching him, and he was saying, all you have to do is say uncle and I'll stop, like mercy, right? Say uncle, and the kid wouldn't say mercy. And finally, Eugene said, the only thing I could think to say was, confess Jesus is the Lord and Savior of your life. <laughs> 
And the guy did. So Eugene Peterson, for the rest of his life, said, that was my first Christian convert. <laughs> In that moment, like he surrendered his life to Christ. Now here's the thing, all right? Think about this. Sometimes when we think submission, we think about being beaten into submission. When it comes to Jesus, Jesus wasn't beaten into submission. Jesus chose a life of submission. Jesus wasn't humbled on the cross by God or by people. Jesus chose a life of humility. Jesus chose to be humble in the way he lived his life. So today I'm asking you and I'm encouraging you to think about what it means in your life to live humbly before God, to embody humility in your life, to embrace submission as something that is good for the entire world. And as I talk about humility and submission, I'm not talking about it as a way where you become a doormat and other people walk on you or you don't live with confidence. It's you live with so much confidence of who you are in God that humility and submission is not something people choose to do to you. It is a choice you make for yourself. The way Paul uses the Christ hymn and the way Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, it's not just to help people believe. It's to help people behave. It's not just about sound doctrine. It's about attitude. So in verses 1 through 4, he's helping to form some values or affirm values that are already present in the church. And this is the whole reason as a church that we launched core values two years ago. Because when we think about discipleship in the life of this church, it's not just helping people believe in the right things, it's to behave in the right kind of way. So when we started thinking about who are we in the process of becoming, these eight values just came together. And when you see the eight values, this isn't like you see them and you choose which one or two you want to follow. Like, we believe that in these eight values, like, this is what a disciple of Jesus looks like. We anticipate what God is doing. We are becoming deeper disciples of Christ. We care about people who are dis disconnected from Jesus. We stand with the marginalized, the orphan, the widow, the foreigner, the poor. We care about physical and mental health. Last week we had a chance to pray over a woman in a worship service who had been dealing with pain for years and she told me the other day that since we prayed she has not felt pain in her life. We believe God is still in the, in the business of healing people mentally, physically, the whole body, holistic healing. That we carry a ministry of reconciliation. We strive to give the next generation a compelling story to live into and that we are a restoration movement. We're not just trying to preserve the past. We're trying to join God and how God's restoring the entire world. Value-shaped behavior. It's not just a belief system. It's how we believe. So in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, what Paul says is this. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Now, to make statements like that, sometimes we read them and we're like, well, it's easy for Jesus. He was, he was God. It's easy for Jesus. But the Bible never talks about it in that kind of way. When the Bible talks about Jesus being an example to follow, it never says, well, it was, it was really easy for Jesus. Good luck for your life. It's Jesus is the ultimate example of how you're supposed to behave, how your attitude is supposed to function in life. And when Paul writes Philippians 2 verse 5, it's not just preparing you for what comes after that. It's, it's connecting what came before it. It's the linchpin of Philippians chapter 2. Now, side note, if you want a project this week for yourself, Take the Christ in Philippians 2. Take John 13 when Jesus washes the disciples' feet and see how they go hand in hand. 
This is a sermon I'm going to preach later on, like next March, okay? But some people believe that John 13, that story, became how the Christ him was developed. It's the example of Jesus. Jesus set an example, we followed an example, all right? That's just a little side note. So here, so what happens is your attitude should be the same as that, as that of Christ Jesus. And then you get verses 6 through 9, 6 through 8, which tell you about the work of Christ. Who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage or grasp. It's the word for robbery. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus set aside his rights and he did not insist on his own way. N.T. Wright and others believe this is the most, the most crucial word in all of this is this word grasp, this word about taking advantage or privilege, that Jesus refused to take advantage of his position. And the Christ him, it tells you, Jesus let go of his privilege. He didn't let go of his essence. It's not like Jesus could stop being God, but he let go of the privilege. The one who could claim equality with God and all the power and glory and privilege that came with it, he emptied himself. He humbled himself. Some people call it downward mobility. Jesus poured himself out for the sake of others. And the true nature of God isn't to grasp for personal advantage, but to act in a way that leads to enrichment of all. And that the Christ and the focus isn't that Jesus died on the cross and went to the cross for the sake of the world, even though that argument is true in the New Testament, in the Christ, him it is, for Jesus. This was obedience to the Father. First and foremost, Jesus wanted to be obedient to his Father. And through that obedience, it became something that blessed the entire world. So what does this look like for us? All right, because I'm trying to argue this morning, the Christ him isn't just to help you believe, it's to help you behave in a certain kind of way. So what does this look like for us? Now, I've shared before, and a lot of times when I'm in a leadership setting, when I'm talking to leaders in churches uh, or <clears throat> settings like that, I, I often tell the story about the movie Hitch that came out around 15 years ago. I'm hesitant to tell stories about Will Smith as the character because the moment back in March, slapping Chris Rock, like my Will Smith references, aren't going to be as much moving forward as they were prior to March, okay? But in the movie Hitch, which is a movie about him being a, a date doctor, and it's, it's a comedy, all right? But one of the critiques Will received, because at the time he was like considered the A-list actor, one of the critiques he received is how could he let someone like Kevin James come into the movie and steal the show? Like, some people thought Kevin James is what made Hitch the funny movie that it was. Because you had all these different scenes with Kevin James where they were totally improv. They would just start running the cameras, and then he would start dancing, and he would make up dances like the Q-tip and making the pizza, and he would throw the inhaler before he kissed a girl. Like, these weren't things written into the script. It was just him in the moment being funny, and it worked. And Will was asked, how could, like a lot of A-list actors, don't let other people come into movies and steal the show. Why did you do it? And Will said this. He said, I see my role as helping other people play their gift, play their instrument to the loudest of their ability. Like, how can I help other people, like, get to center stage and use their gift to the very best of their ability? Now, Will Smith wasn't talking about faith or what it means to be the church, but there was something about that that resonated with me. 
So for my own life, how can I use whatever influence or power or position that God has given me to help other people come to life, not just the strength in my position and my influence? And what does it look like for me as a spouse or a dad or a friend to use whatever influence I have to help other people come to life? Like, what does it mean for the church to use whatever influence and resources and positions we have, not just to make ourselves better, but to become even more of a witness to the world? So in 2019, I was 39 years old. I was about to enter into a new decade of my life, and three different times when I've entered into a decade, before my 20s, 30s, and 40s, I spent time with God, dreaming with God of, God, what do I want the next decade? What do you want the next decade of life to look like for me? So back in 2019, it was, God, what do you want my 40s to look like? Sometimes I, I do well thinking 10 years out, like my next decade, like who is it that I want to be? When I come to the end of the decade, who do I want to be? So I spent time dreaming with God, and, and in my 40s, like, I, I'm sh- I may write a book or two, but it wasn't about writing more books. It wasn't about, like, it wasn't about my position or my influence or my name or anything like that. There were three things in prayer and fasting I landed on. One was this, properly directed passion. Have passion that's directed in the right place. In my 40s, I'm going to have to preach through two more presidential election seasons Allegiances are pulled all over the place. For me, as a leader and disciple of Jesus, properly directed passion. The second thing was a commitment to high character development. Because I know that the enemy, Satan, is, comes after all people. Satan loves tearing down leaders. And a slip-up, a moment of weakness can ruin you for the rest of your life. So commit to high character development. One of my mentors tells me every year, he says, if the price is right, everyone's integrity can be for sale. So you've got to make sure, even how you treat the private moments of your life, that you know who you are in the private moments will impact who you are in the public moments. So commit to high character development. The third thing was genuine humility. And genuine humility wasn't just my standing with God. It was to become so confident in who I am in God that I live my life helping everyone else around me come to know Jesus and come to life in every way imaginable. So here's what Jesus did. Jesus gave himself. It was a choice Jesus made. He gave himself. And the reason he gave himself was for the sake of the world, but it was because Jesus was so confident of his identity and his worth. So as I encourage you to choose humility in your life, it's not that other people choose it for you, it's that you choose it. And when you choose it, it's not that you become a doormat that other people walk on or that you become somebody in which we let other people oppress us. It's because you become so confident in your identity and worth that you live your life in a way that will benefit everyone else around you. So I want to ask our prayer leaders and elders, if you will, go to receive people for prayer. And over the next few minutes, we're going to go to communion. And the place of prayer is going to stay available for a few minutes. This is a part in our worship service where we're just saying, God, we are creating a few minutes for you. And whatever you want to do in this time, we're just asking you to do it. And it doesn't have to be prayers for humility, though it can. But around this room, Willie's going to be up here to my right and to my Back to my right is Lenora, over to my left is Shelly, and we are just here to receive you. 
for prayer, if there's anything we can do for you, sometimes it's just a movement to a prayer leader which helps your heart move to God, and it could be what other people need a witness to, is to see you taking your faith seriously so that they can take a step in their own life too. And I'm usually up here to my left to receive people for prayer, but in a few minutes, we're going to have two baptisms this morning. So I'm going to go up and get ready to baptize somebody. But I'm asking, can we stand together as a church? And here's what I want to do this morning. Here's what I want to do to end. Lacey, if you'll throw up uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. I want us just to recite these three verses together as a declaration that when we live the humble life, when we embrace humility, the Bible says God lifts us up. And it doesn't mean lifting us up may mean more money in your life or more status in your life. It is in connection to Jesus. So let's read this together. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Lacey, if you'll put up that last slide, this slide's just going to remain up there for a couple of minutes for us. As you get communion, as you get the bread and the cup, this may be something you want to reflect on by yourself or a conversation you may want to have with someone around you. This is the work of Christ for you. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to make our way to a table. If I can get one or two Sycamore View women who would go up the baptistry steps to my right to help the people who are going to get baptized, the young lady who's going to get baptized, uh, please go and help them this morning. But right now, let's bow our heads and let's pray. For God, um, Jesus, for the choice you made to humble yourself and that you became obedient to death, even death on a cross. This morning, we received the benefit from that. Thank you for your obedience. And as you were so obedient, as your attitude was just to live in a way that brought glory to your Father that could enrich the whole world, may we do the same thing this week, to be obedient to you and to be a light in the world. So God, as we take the bread and the cup, we are thankful for all you have done for us. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Please make your way to a table.